have several things going on. Dave mentioned some of them. Um, tonight's Christmas play. Next Sunday, in between services, we're having a Christmas brunch. Uh, we'd encourage everybody to get here a little bit early next week and enjoy some delicious food. There's a sign-up sheet in the back, and so check that out before you leave. Just whatever your breakfast brunch specialty is, that'll be great. I will eat it. It'll be awesome. So thank you in advance. Um, also, we are working together. My heart breaks over the tornadoes and all the devastation. And so we're, we're trying to figure out how we can be helpful. Uh, there's a guy here at church that would like to try and organize a group to go down there. We're still trying to figure out the logistics of that. Uh, so we'll keep you updated. Um, also, there were a lot of tornadoes that went through Campbellsville, which is my wife's hometown. And she would like to do next Sunday night at 6 p.m., kind of a fundraiser concert. Um, so we're working out the details on that, but just plan on being here next Sunday at 6 p.m. Um, if you haven't heard my wife sing before, I know I'm a little bit biased, but she's pretty incredible. And so even if you don't really want to donate any money, that's okay. Just come and enjoy some Christmas music. It should be a lot of fun and really, really enjoyable. So that happened next Sunday at 6 p.m. Uh, we are in the Advent season. Advent means arrival and this is a time every year where we all pause, the world pauses and remembers the birth of Christ that happened 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, and yet everybody still seems to be interested in it, even today. Uh, and it, it, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it, the lasting effect. And that just goes to show you how real it is. This isn't just you know some story in history book. This is real life. And it's, God is still active today. And one of the ways that we see the work of God in our lives is the love of God. And that's what I want to focus on today, the love of God. Now, the problem that we have in our culture is we use the word love for everything. We only really have one word for love. In the Greek language, the New Testament is written mostly in Greek, and they have four words for the word love, uh, where we use primarily one. And, and what that means is that I love Jesus Christ, and I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I also love Little Debbie Christmas cake pies, and I love sweatpants. Amen? And so we, we kind of have a problem with this word love. We don't, we don't as much know as, we, as much as we think what that word means. When I was a, a kid, you know, I'd, I'd have these little girlfriends. We'd play uh, Red Rover, Red Rover. You guys remember that game? And, you know, we'd hold hands on the playground. And while we were holding hands on the playground, I would say, I love you to the little girl, you know? And my mom was like, you need to stop saying that because you just, you don't know what that means. And I think my mom's right. You know, we throw that word around. We say love is love and love wins and love will find a way. And, uh, you know, all these, all these phrases with the word love, um, love is blind, love, hate relationship, all you need is love, all these different things. But what do any of those phrases even mean? You know, I think if we ask 10 people in this room, we get 10 different definitions. And so in order for us to really understand love, thankfully, this, this guy named John, who walked around with Jesus for three years, uh, he is an expert on this subject. And he wrote uh, a good part of the New Testament. And it seems like all of his writings center around this idea of love. So I want to point your attention to a, a verse that doesn't sound like a Christmas verse at, at first, but you'll see it as we work through it. First John chapter 4. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. I hope you brought your Bibles today because you will need them. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if, we, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for the privilege, the honor, Lord, to come and lift up your name, to pray to you, to open your word and, and learn from that and just be built up in our spirit, Lord. And I just pray that you'll minister to us, each and every one, exactly what we need. We all come here, Lord, desperate for something. And I just pray that you'll show up, Lord, in a way only that you can. I pray that you'll speak through me, Lord. I, I really need you today. I need you, Holy Spirit, to do all the work because I'm just, I'm not that smart. I'm, I'm a sinner just like everybody else in this room. And uh, Lord, they don't need anything from me. They, they need a word from you. So please have your way in this place today, Lord. We need you. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray a prayer something like this. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. First John chapter 4, John starts off this conversation. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Now, this is one of the favorite verses of Christians who we could categorize as like progressive Christians, uh, LBGTQ plus affirming churches. I listened to a pastor of one of those churches this past week. There was a video on YouTube that I, I saw and he had a uh, pride flag in the foyer of his church. And uh, he was talking about this, one of this, this verse in particular. And uh, he ridiculed pastors like me and others who affirm biblical marriage. And we say that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And uh, he, he said of pastors like me and Christians like me that we are unloving and unchristian. And he pointed back to this verse. He says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. He says, if you, if you can't love, you know, that's hate speech. And if you can't love, then that means you don't know God. And so he would say of me that I'm not even a Christian. He says when he reads the Bible, he, he reads and interprets the Bible with a hermeneutic of love. And basically that means that when he's, he's processing who God is, he's thinking about theology uh, he, he says, if it isn't loving, then it isn't of God. It's just not. By his definition, if it isn't loving, then it isn't of God. And that includes the parts of the Bible and the, the parts of theology and doctrine that he, he finds offensive or he, he has seen to be hurtful to those in his tribe. Now, here's the mistake that people make when interpreting this passage. People like this man and other affirming Christians. John, who walked with Jesus for three years, he knows Jesus as good as anybody. Um, John said of himself, I'm the one that Jesus loved. So that's a pretty good title. I'd like that title myself. And so you could say of John, he was one of Jesus' best friends. Um, the Bible says, Jesus said to John, he said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And so if anybody knows God, it's John. And, and God, or John says, not of Jesus. Uh, he doesn't say love is God. He says God is love. He doesn't say love is God. He says God is love. Can you see the distinction? Let me, let me tease it out for you a little bit. If love is God, then love is the supreme authority on life and living. Everything that appears loving is from God, and everything that comes from a quote-unquote loving place is approved and affirmed by God, if, if love is God. Now, that sounds great. It'd be awesome on a bumper sticker, on a T-shirt, on your Instagram feed. Love is God. That sounds great. Here's the problem with that theology. Here's the problem with that way of looking at the world. Who defines love? Okay, so let me give you some examples. It'll help you see this problem. 
The other day, I had to cut one of my daughters off from sugar. I said, you've had enough sugar for tonight. I don't know what she was eating, probably everything, cookies, cake, ice cream, chocolate, just you name it, she was eating it. She was hanging off the ceiling fan. Her eyes were bugging out. I had to cut her off. She said to me, I'm sure what some of your kids, if you have kids, you parents know, you've heard this before. She said to me what they, they've probably said to you, you don't love me. You don't love me. Because by her definition of love, love is you give me everything that I want. Now, my definition of love is said, I don't want you to get diabetes, so I'm going to cut you off from the sweets. <laughs> Years ago, uh, I had a family member uh, who came to me, and he asked for money. He said, I need money. Now, he was an addict. And so I said no to him. And he said to me, you don't love me. Because by his definition of love, I should give him this money so that he can get this thing that he feels like he needs. But by my definition of love, it would be unloving to enable him to continue in this destructive behavior. When I was in college, I dated a girl, and she refused to let me break up with her. I mean, she refused. I tried multiple times. She just wouldn't listen. And she would stalk me all over campus. And then if I ever talked to another girl, she would go and intimidate that girl. She'd say, that's my man. You keep your hands off of him. And so I go to her and I say, we are broke up. And she said, no, we're not. I love you. And I said, but I don't love you. <laughs> and this is what she said. That's not very Christian of you. Okay, now do you see the problem? Who defines love? Who defines love? We want a God who never says no. We want a God who always says yes to us, always gives me what I want, and that's how we want to define love. You making me happy. You doing what I want. We want a God who never hurts our feelings, who always just builds up and always just encourages and always never, never uh, chastises. We want that kind of God, but here's the truth. That kind of God is a cruel God. Love is not God. John says God is love. God is love. Now, I am, Jeff is, five foot 11 and three quarters. I want to be a quarter inch taller, just so I can say I'm six foot, but I honestly, five foot 11 and three quarters. Jeff is black-headed. Jeff is dark-complected. Jeff is male. These are all characteristics. These are all attributes of who I am. These things don't cancel each other out. My black-headedness has nothing to do with my 5'11 and 3 quarterness. doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, and, and these things don't change. If I stand on my tiptoes, guess what? I'm still 5'11 and 3 quarters. I'm just standing on my tiptoes. If I put on a dress and lipstick, that doesn't make me not a male. I'm still a male, okay? In the same way, God is love. God is also eternal. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere present. God is love. God is also holy. God is also just. God is also righteous. None of these attributes negate one another. And so when we read the Bible and we get to a hard story, we get to a story like the story of Noah, when God wipes out the whole human race besides Noah and his family. Or we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God sends fire from heaven and destroys two whole cities. And we, we, like, we, we, we live out this life that we're living in. We come to these moments in our life where we see tragedy and we see heartache, and we see injustice, and we, we experience pain in this world, and it's easy for us to say of God, you must not be loving. But this is what John says, you should never accuse God of being unloving, and you should never accuse God, which is becoming more and more popular, you should never accuse God of being less loving than you are. 
Instead, John says, when you think about God, when you think about the activities of God, when you think about your life in relation to God, you should start with the presupposition that God is love and everything he does is loving. Even the things that at the, at the moment they're hurtful, even in the things at the moment they're confusing. Now, this is very hard for us to do because life is difficult and life is unfair and life is unjust and life is painful. But I would contend today that in the same way my kids don't understand the seriousness of diabetes and so they question my love, in the same way that an alcoholic doesn't understand the seriousness of their addiction so they question my love, in the same way because we have a limited understanding and a limited vision, we can't see the fullness of God's love. And so this is what John does. John says in making the argument that God is love, Everything God does is loving. In making that argument, John points back to Christmas. And he says, when you really think about Christmas, then you have to admit it settles the debate once and for all. You should never question this again. It settles the debate that God is love. And everything God does is loving. So let's look. Verse 9, 1 John chapter 4. God's love was revealed demonstrated, shown among us in this way, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, I want you to underline that phrase if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you did. You get extra credit points in heaven when you bring your Bible to church. Underline that phrase. We're going to come back to it, that we might live through him. Now, during Christmas time in on a, on a day like today, you're expecting to hear like the Christmas story, the narrative of Christmas. You want to hear about the star of Bethlehem. You want to hear about the baby in the manger. You want to hear about the shepherds and the wise men and the star and the whole deal. And I get that, and it's beautiful. But if we're going to understand the fullness of God's love, then we need to understand more so than we, I think we currently do, we need to understand the meaning of Christmas. Specifically, why did Jesus come as a human? And also, why was Jesus born a virgin? As we answer those two questions, it's going to open your eyes to just how much God loves you. Now, to answer that, we've got to do a history lesson. And some of you, first service, struggle with this. And I had a frog in my throat the whole service, and I apologize to everybody that was at first service. But first service was totally glazed over because they felt like they were in history class. But just track with me, and I promise there's a payoff, okay? Okay. So let's go back to the very beginning. God created Adam. Adam was the first man. Adam was the forefather of humanity. Adam is the head. He's the representative of mankind. God gave Adam the earth. And he said to Adam, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. And so God gave Adam dominion over the earth. At the earth belonged to Adam. And so essence, in essence, this is what we had. We had God, the king of the universe, and then we had Adam, the prince of the earth. That's what we had. And so God is, is sovereign. He's in charge. Adam answers to God, but God has given Adam the, the right and the responsibility to take care of, to guide, to lead, to protect, to provide for the earth. Okay. And so at this point in this story, things are going well. And then a snake slithers onto the scene. You remember this story, right? And so the snake is an evil usurper. He is a lying, cheating uh, advisor. 
And he wants to undermine the king and he wants to sabotage the prince. And so the serpent says to Adam, in effect, this is what the serpent says with his one question. He says this, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't. God is trying to hold something back from you. And that's why he's told you, you can have everything else on the earth, but there's this one tree and this one fruit in the center of the garden that you're not supposed to eat. You remember this story. And, and, and Satan, the, ser- the serpent, says to Adam, he says, God knows if you eat from that fruit, you will be like God. You'll be just as strong and just as powerful and just as wise and just as capable, so much so that you won't need God anymore. You will be on his level. And so Satan, in effect, says to Adam, if you ever want to be king, then you must eat this forbidden fruit. Adam doesn't trust God. God says, if you eat that fruit, you will surely die. This is not going to lead to life for you. This is going to lead to destruction. Adam doesn't trust God. Instead, Adam trusts who? The serpent. And he eats this forbidden fruit. In eating the fruit, Adam has committed an act of treason, an act of rebellion against the God of the universe. This was an act of war. And because Adam submitted to the will of the serpent instead of the will of God, Adam took the dominion that God had given him and he gave that dominion over to the serpent. And so now, at this point, uh, the created order of God is all messed up. It's all out of whack. And so now we still have the God of the universe. He still rules on his throne. Nobody can kick him off. We still have the God of the universe, but we also now have a rebel king. And he's not a rightful king. He's a lying, cheating, deceiving king. He's even deceived himself. And underneath this rebel king, Adam has placed himself under his submission. And by extension, every uh, generation after Adam they are born into a treacherous family, into a rebellious family, and they are under the dominion of the rebel king, Satan. Are you guys still tracking with me? Okay, you're doing better in first service. They were glazed at this point. Okay. God doesn't give up on mankind, doesn't give up on his creation. Instead, he makes a promise. This is at the very beginning of history, thousands and thousands of years before Jesus was ever born. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman. And so God says, okay, there's going to be a struggle because mankind is going to long for me. It's going to want to long to be back in this garden with me, that we have this intimate relationship. We're walking in the cool of the night. It's going to long for that. And so it's going to fight against you, Satan. God's talking to the serpent here. He's saying it's going to fight against you. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be war. And, and, and the people of God are going to try and do the right thing. They're going to try and prove their loyalty to me as the king of the universe again. And they're going to try and, and, and take back dominion of the earth. They're going to try, but they're not going to be very successful. And that's what we see for thousands of years. Uh, God gives Adam's family, his descendants, every opportunity, every resource, every freedom to prove their loyalty to him and to take back dominion over the earth. You remember he gave Cain that mark on his head as protection. Uh, He gave Noah the ark to save the family of Adam. He gave a covenant to Abraham. He gave the law to Moses. He gave the promised land to his people. He gave anointed kings to the nation of Israel. On and on and on. But yet every generation, every one of Adam's descendants eventually distrusted God, acted selfishly, partnered with Satan, operating according to his evil way, 
rebelled against God, and they made God their enemy. Every single generation, to the point that God looks down on humanity, and he says, no one does good, not even one. No one chooses God. But God makes a promise, and he says, that's the way it's going to be. There's going to be hostility between you, your offspring, and her offspring. He, the seed of the woman, will strike the serpent's head, crush his head, and you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. This is a prophecy and a promise. Mankind proved itself incapable of self-redemption, given all the freedom and resources and opportunities. All mankind could ever do was follow in their father Adam's rebellious footsteps. But Jesus Christ was born. First John chapter 4, verse 9 God's love was revealed among us in this way. Here's the, the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3.15. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So this is what's happening at Christmas. Jesus comes to redeem humanity. Every other religion says that it's man's responsibility to make their way to God. Only Christianity says that God came to man. Every other religion says you've got to work and be perfect and do everything right and earn your way to God. Only Christianity in which God makes a way, God comes to man and makes a way for him to get to God. Jesus came to redeem humanity by becoming human. Jesus was born of a woman. He was born as a baby boy so that he could identify to and relate to become the new representative of mankind. Jesus came to become the new head of the human race, to start a brand new family tree. Jesus was born as a virgin so that he wouldn't be born into the treacherous family line of Adam. Scripture teaches us that Christ came to be the second Adam, to begin a new line of humanity that is completely obedient to the Father and perfectly bearing God's image upon the earth, a family tree that is worthy to share space with the Holy One. And so that's why Jesus says, you remember in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus knows the Old Testament better than anybody that you have ever heard of. He probably had it memorized. And, and Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, this teacher of the law, and he says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be what? Born again. Born again. Why does he say that? Because you, as it stands now, you are part of a treacherous, rebellious family. You need to be born again into a new family, into a new humanity, into a redeemed humanity. And so that's what John means when he says here, so that we might live through him. You see, we have to become part of a new bloodline. You have the blood of Adam coursing through your veins. Rebellion is part of your DNA. And so we must be washed clean by the blood of Christ. We must be dispossessed by the rebellious spirit of Adam. That's what controls us when we're apart from Christ. And we need to be possessed by the obedient spirit of Christ. We need to disown our treacherous forefather, Adam, and we need to pledge allegiance to our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so this is what we see on Christmas. The Son of God became Mary's baby boy so that he could get his diaper changed 
And so he could learn to crawl, and so he could learn to walk, and so he could go to school, so he could get a job, so he could work long hours and come home and be starving to death and eat a food that has been left out for too long. So this belly aches all night, and he's on the toilet, and he wakes up the next day, and he hadn't got any rest, and he's got to deal with a bunch of knuckleheads at work all day tomorrow. So that he could honestly say, truly say, I am one of you so that he could truly, honestly say, you can be one with me. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. What Adam was unable to do as the representative of humanity, Christ did perfectly, so that mankind could be redeemed. Now, that's just part of the story. You see, it's not enough for Jesus just to become a man and come to earth. And that's why John says this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. I want you to circle that, atoning sacrifice for our sins. It wasn't enough for Jesus to just begin a new humanity. If he starts a family tree and we're still all related to Adam, we're still all part of Adam's bloodline, then what good is it? What good is it if we can't join that family? And so Jesus had to do something. He had to do something uh, to to transition us from the old family into the new family. Uh, Because the truth is that humanity didn't love God. That's what John says here. Not that we loved God. We hated God. We hated God, and our actions prove that. We're born into this treacherous family of Adam. Rebellion is in our DNA. Uh, We all follow in Adam's footsteps. We don't do what pleases God. Instead, we do what is selfish to us. We do what we think is going to make us happy. We run away from God. We make God our enemy. We curse God. Uh, We don't submit to God in any way. And so that makes every person, just like Adam, an enemy of God. And because God is just as much just as he is loving, his nature is incompatible with allowing rebellion to go unpunished, with allowing wickedness, sinfulness to go unpunished. If God were to allow evil to go unpunished, God would cease to be good. You get that, right? So Adam eats the forbidden fruit, and if God just turns a blind eye, he says, oh, it's not a big deal. All of a sudden, God is a pushover. Now, you get to the next generation. What did Cain and Abel do? Cain took a rock and smashed his brother's head in. Now, imagine Cain with a bloody rock in his hand, standing over his dead brother, and God says, oh, don't worry about it, no big deal. All of a sudden, God becomes evil, right? And we, we extend that not just to one little family. We extend that to the whole human race, and then God is just not going to punish sin. All of a sudden, God is a wicked, depraved God. And so he doesn't do that. It's contrary to his nature. It's contrary to his identity. And so this is what happens. Adam, he took the forbidden fruit. He ate the forbidden fruit. God comes and finds him in the garden. And Adam gives an account. Remember? Adam gives an account for taking. God says, what have you done? And Adam says, it is the fault of the woman that you gave me. You remember that? And so don't, this is what Adam's saying, don't kill me, don't punish me, punish them. He even said, this is what Adam's really saying, 
you shouldn't punish me. You should punish yourself. He says that to God. Okay, so that's Adam, okay? This is what Christ did. God became a man so that he could be killable. You can't kill God. So this is what, this is what Jesus did. He put on skin and bones, right? He, he took a heartbeat. He took a brain. He took a stomach that needed food. He took on a body so that he could be killed. And then Jesus was born as a virgin so that he, he creates a new family tree. I'm not associated with Adam. I'm something altogether different. And then he lived a perfect, sinless life so that at the end of it, Jesus doesn't have to pay the penalty for any of his sins. And so he can do what Adam refused to do. Looking at the sin, at the rebellion of all of mankind, Jesus doesn't say, punish them. Instead, Jesus says, put the punishment on me. In the garden, uh, Adam had, had, had committed this grave sin. And so uh, what, what, what really should have happened is God should have killed Adam. And, and that's what God says, basically. He said, I should kill you. That was the punishment. If you eat from this fruit, surely you will die. But God, he says, instead of killing him, this is what he says. He says, I'm going to take this animal. I'm going to take this. You remember this. He said, I'm going to take this animal, and I'm going to kill this animal. And I want you to watch, because I want you to see how serious your sin is. I'm going to see this is what you deserve, but I'm not going to put it on you. I'm going to put it on this animal that doesn't have a soul. I'm going to put it on them. And then he took the skin from that animal, and he put it on Adam to cover over his guilt and shame. You remember this. And so this is what Christ is doing. Christ is now saying, okay, I know all of them, they're the rebels. They're the ones that have hated you. Those are the ones who have acted like your enemy. They deserve the punishment, but I'm going to take it on myself. And then I'm going to clothe over them so that when you see them, you don't see Adam anymore. You see the perfect, obedient son, Christ. Such that, such that, when the enemy makes accusation against you, now you're in Christ, and he says, you don't deserve the kingdom. She doesn't deserve the inheritance. They're not worthy of eternal life. He's a traitor. She's a sinner. They are evil. Jesus will point back to his life, and he'll say, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was on him was Give us peace. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter five. I hope you brought your Bibles because this isn't on the screen. Verse 19. Well, I'll start with verse 18. So then as one, as through one trespass, there was condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there was justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteousness. Jesus paid the full price for your sins and mine. The full measure of God's justice and God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And you'll remember on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when all the punishment landed on him. And then on the cross, he says, it is finished. There's no more sin that needs to be paid for. I have paid the price in full. And so when Satan brings accusation against the, the, those who have pledged allegiance to Christ, this is what Jesus will say. He'll say, I'm their representative. I'm their representative. 
This human is my creation, and this is my kingdom. Against me and me alone have they sinned, and I myself with my own blood have paid the full price. I have taken the full punishment for their sins upon myself. Fully and freely they have been forgiven. Fully and freely all the penalties have been paid off with my own blood. Jesus was born as an innocent baby, so that he could die as a sinless man in the place of sinful humanity. Jesus became a man so that he could die for all men. He grew a beard so that it could be ripped out. He had strong legs of a walking preacher so that he could walk up Mount Calvary. He had the calloused hands of a carpenter so they could drive nails through him. He was despised so that you could be loved. He was rejected so that you would be accepted. He was punished so that you might be rewarded. He was hurt so that you might be healed. He was killed so that you might live. He was buried so that you might rise. Jesus became Mary's son so that you could become God's child. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. Friends, you could not accomplish that. There was absolutely nothing you could do to change your bloodline. There was nothing you could do to fix your rebellious spirit. Christ did it all. He paid it all. And because he did, you are fully forgiven. You are fully cleansed. You are fully accepted. You are fully adopted. You are fully loved. No matter what happens in this world, no matter if there's fire raining down from heaven, no matter if there's water deluging all around you, no matter if there's sickness, no matter if there's poverty, no matter if there's heartbreak, no matter if there's a headache, no matter what's going on in your life, think back to Christmas and be reminded, God loves me. And nothing can change that. Now, when that hits you, it should change you. Like when you really receive that, it will change you in two ways. Number one, you will love God. You will love him. As it stands, for those outside of Christ, you hate God. You're you're just like your father Adam. You, You run away from God. You hide from God. You rebel against God. You don't want him ruling over you. You hated God, but God loved you. You ran from him, he pursued you. You ate the forbidden fruit, God gave you covering. Uh, You you took a rock and you bashed your brother's head in and God put a mark on your, your head so that nobody would hurt you. You sold your brother into slavery, God saved your whole family from famine. You complained in the wilderness. God sent bread from heaven and water from a rock. You committed genocide against your own brothers. God gave you a king. You treated God like an enemy. God gave his life for yours. God doesn't hate you. God loves you. God has good intentions for your life. And so this is what you can do. All the the weapons, all the defenses that you have against God, the sovereignty of God in your life, just put them down. Every time you want to argue with God about what's right for you, just put it down. 
Every time you want to doubt God's plan for your life, just put it down. Stop fighting with God and start trusting God. Stop treating God like he's enemy and start treating God like he loves you as much as he does. God wants to give you eternal life. Stop hiding from him. Stop running from him. Come up out from underneath that bush and just say, God, here I am. I'm all yours. Now, if you do that, if you do that, 1 John chapter 5, this is what it looks like. I wish you brought your Bibles to church. You'd be able to keep up with me. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You see there? Born of God. Not born of Adam, born of God. I believe in Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is. It's not complicated. Obey to keep his commands. And his commandments are not burdened because everyone who's been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Do you love God? I mean, if you really get it, if you receive the love of God, then you will love God and it won't be a burden. It won't be a burden. And guess what? It leads to victory. It leads to victory. Adam's way leads to death. Christ's way leads to victory. And so I love him, and I'm going to obey his commandments. I'm going to trust him, and it won't be a burden. And then as you do that, guess what? Just the, the, the natural progression, the natural outcome of you loving God, number two, you love others. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. This is how you know you've been born again into the new humanity. This is how you know you have truly received the love of God. Once you have received the love of God, you cannot help but love one another. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 and following. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. If you don't have love, you do not have God. I don't care how much Bible you know. I don't care how many times you've been dunked in water. I don't care how many confessions that you've made. If you do not have love, you do not have God. If you have hate in your heart, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, if you slander and gossip and curse against people, if you lie and cheat and steal from people, if you're jealous, if you act greedily, if you won't show compassion, if you won't rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, if you won't sacrifice of yourself for the good of others, you refuse to go the extra mile, you, you refuse to turn the other cheek, you refuse to take the shirt off your back, if you pay back evil for evil and you would long to see your enemies rot in hell but before you would rather see them repent, believe, and be saved, then the love of God isn't in you. You are still walking in Adam's footsteps. And so you need to, if that's you, you need to fall on your knees and beg God for mercy. Ask the Holy Spirit to take out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, one that looks less like Adam and more like Christ. Because he went from the height of glory to the depths of shame. 
from the wonders of heaven to the wilderness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from worship to wrath. He was born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling rags, no room for him who made all space. The creator God become a helpless child. The lion of Judah become a spotless lamb. The king of glory become a suffering servant. All because we could not ascend to us, to him, he descended to us. Oh, what great love the father has for us. Receive that, love him and love others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that it falls on ears that have heard, eyes that have seen, and a heart that's received it. Lord, I pray that you'll change us. Lord, help us, first and foremost, just to see how much you love us. Lord, I pray that each person in this room is confronted with their sin and their rebellion. I pray that every person here is reminded of how they walked in the footsteps of Adam. Lord, how we've rebelled against you time and time again. We ran. We did the opposite of what you asked us to do. Lord, we hid under a bush. We didn't want you to be our king, and yet you chased after us. Every step of the way, Lord, you never gave up on us. You never stopped pursuing us. Lord, you chased us down with your love. And when you found us, Lord, you didn't kill us. Instead, you died for us. And you said, this is how much I love you. And you, you stretched your arms out as far as they could stretch out. And you allowed yourself to be nailed to a cross. Lord, I pray. I pray that love changes us. Help us to be more like Christ and less like Adam. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a song. This is an opportunity to pray, be prayed for, opportunity to be reminded of the body and blood of Christ. If you haven't taken communion today, we have emblems on each side of the stage. Uh, The cracker represents the body and the blood, or the juice represents the blood. Now we do this every week because it's important to be reminded that uh, this isn't just a story in a book. Jesus really did put on skin and bones. He really did hurt. He really did cry. He really did bleed. And so when you stub your toe, realize Jesus felt that kind of pain. Now just imagine nails being driven through your wrist. Imagine hanging on a tree totally naked. And imagine doing all of that for people who have treated you like an enemy. That's how much God loves you. And so as you take the emblems today, as you're reminded of that love, I pray it changes you. Are you here today? You're far from Christ. Will you please come and talk to me? The first step to new new life is submission. We just come and we bow before the King, King Jesus, and say, you take control. You take control. Now that sounds scary until you remember this is a King who dies for his people. You don't have to be scared of this King. So if you're here today and you're far from Christ, please come talk to me. As we sing, come. Come.